I'm Dr. Pete Economo, the East Coast psychologist. And I'm Dr. Nikki Rubin, the West Coast psychologist. And this is When East Meets West. Pete, I'm really excited because we got another bonus episode here with a new guest for season two. Um, So first of all, hi, Pete. Hey, Hi. Oh we, we're doing the guest thing again. We're doing the guest thing again. So I'm building a little anticipation here before I introduce our guest. Who so, is it? Well, we're, <laughs> here we go. Well, so we're going to be talking about disordered eating today, which is Fun. not a specialty of either Pete uh, or myself. And we are very- I'm good honest. at eating. <laughs> you you are. I, I also am. Um, we've actually got um, a wonderful guest, a very dear friend and colleague of mine, um, Dr. Danielle Keenan-Miller. Uh, and Danielle is a psychological scientist, teacher, therapist, and a co-author of the book, The Binge Eating Prevention Workbook. It's out now. It's excellent. I have it in my office. I've been using it with patients. Um, and Danielle's also the director of the UCLA Psychology Clinic and an associate adjunct professor of psychology at UCLA, where she trains grad students in evidence-based psychotherapy. That's actually how we originally met, because I'm a, I'm a, a supervisor there. Uh, Danielle's also authored just a ton, over a dozen uh, scientific articles, and then also serves on the executive board of the Association for Psychology Training Clinics. Um, And she has a a private practice in Los Angeles as well, uh, where she blends the art of science and psychotherapy, which is, you know, what we we like to talk about here on Winnie Smith's West. So Danielle, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So impressive. And I started uh, our introduction as as Danielle and I met of... uh, I'm looking at your CV. Your CV is super <laughs> impressive. So I think it's, how do you do all that you do? How do you balance? Um, you know, there's a lot. I, you know what? Part of what I love about my job actually is that there's a lot of different hats. I love my clinical time. I love my teaching time. I love research. I love thinking about how to get good care into people's hands. So um, it looks like a lot on paper, but it's actually sort of fun to do that task switching through the day. I hear that. And Danielle's, and I can, and I say she's very skilled at it. I can know because I, I see, see it up close. So, uh, you know, Nikki supervises in the clinic I direct, and we are so thrilled that she is there. I think she's a good teacher. That's what I always say. Ah, uh, thank you. Thank Wait, you. so can you define? So we're going to talk about disordered eating, and I'm, I don't, I don't know where we're starting, but I'm wondering, could you define for us disordered eating? Yeah, you know, I think. There's not one right answer to that question, but I think of um, eating being a problem in someone's life, aka disordered eating, when it starts to cause them distress, when they're having negative consequences, either in terms of how they're feeling, their happiness, um, their health, their ability to engage in social relationships or desired activities, when eating is really starting to take up a place in somebody's life that's too big. Eating has a role in our life. It's essential. It's essential for sustenance. And it's also a huge part of what brings people joy and connection. But when eating starts to grow beyond those boundaries in somebody's life, that's when I start to think of it as a problem. So Nikki and I's obsession with dominoes sometimes (laughs) takes over our life. Nikki, right? No? (laughs) Well, no, no, because I, it doesn't take over my life because I, I, I won't feel well. So that, that consequence stops me from, stops it from taking over my foot. But we do, do, but we do have a deep love of dominoes that we've mentioned many times on the podcast here. It takes over, takes over Pete's life sometimes, I think. Well, when I'm able to eat it, but I, I don't mean to make light of it, but, yeah, you know, certainly, yeah. you know, it can cause some pretty significant issues and maybe we'll, I don't know, should we talk about some of the diagnoses that fit into it? Because I know your book is about binge eating specifically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
binge eating is certainly one of the forms of, you know, sort of diagnosable disordered mm-hmm. eating. Um, obviously there's also people who tend to be much more familiar with the other two anorexia and bulimia. Um, even though binge eating is far more prevalent, it's much more of a problem than anorexia and bulimia combined actually in terms yeah. of people it affects. But I'd say there's also a wide spectrum of sort of gray area where people struggle with their body image. They struggle with overeating or eating in a way that's really not about food. That's maybe more about their emotions or about what's happening in their life. Um, And I would think all of those sort of fall under that same umbrella of disordered eating. You know, as you're talking, like the thing that is is coming into my mind is sort of this, um, this, this, maybe this problem where there are going to be some people that view eating, taking over their life as, as an issue, as a reason they're going to seek treatment. And then some people that view it not as a problem, right? Like it's something, you know, positive or something to cling to. Um, I, I'm just wondering how, like, how does that impact, first of all, like who walks in your door seeking treatment yeah. uh, for, for disordered eating? Um, well, actually, maybe I'll just start there because I have like 40 questions <laughs> bouncing around in my 40, brain. I have 41, but go ahead. Okay. okay. <laughs> long, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's a really good point. And I think even for people who recognize that their eating habits are a problem in their life, most people feel enough shame about that, that they don't bring it up. We know, for example, mm. most people who binge eat never talk to a therapist about it, even if they're in therapy for a different issue. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah. People really think that problems with eating are about willpower. It's some kind of personal failure. It's some kind of moral failure. And they struggle, I think, to bring that to therapy. So it's really important for therapists to be actively asking about how people's Mm -hmm. relationship with food and their body is. Um, But you're right. There's also a subset of people who um, experience they're eating problems in a way that I guess in old school terms, we would call egocentric, right? Mm-hmm. They see it as an advantage. And there's lots of social praise for um, excessively restrictive and rigid eating styles that to me fall under that rubric of disordered eating yes. because it means people can't travel. They can't eat with their friends. They can't mm-hmm. um, feel happy if they eat something outside of their plan. They're berating themselves. Those kinds of styles of living sometimes are actually praised socially. And yeah, don't see them as a problem. And that's also a big cause for concern and something that therapists should, again, be inquiring about and asking about and making space for because that's part of healing. Well, I, I'm wondering what like your journey to get there. You know, I think to, to, to write this book, which is such a gift because it it puts the behaviorism and it, and it highlights this more common. I, my peer supervisor, Hey, Deborah Gill, who Nick, I actually, she's a UCLA girl. Oh, I wonder if you guys have ever crossed paths. I never, I just, that just linked, but anyway, uh, I disliked, um, some peer supervision with her because I had to face my own binge eating. Uh, and, and so I, I wondered what, and I'll talk more about that this episode, but I wondered, you know, your own journey to getting to this book, like, what was that like? Yeah. Well, I, um, had never really done any, um, treatment with eating disorders until internship. And then that was sort of my major focus on internship. I was working at the UCLA Counseling and Psychological Services Center, which is where the um, UCLA undergraduate and graduate students get therapy. And because of the nature of the population, particularly that age range, we saw um, a high degree of disordered eating and eating disorders. And um, I worked with a supervisor where that was the main focus of our practice for that year. 
And I uh, fell in love with doing that kind of work, um, mostly because I saw all of these students, mostly women, some men, who a huge portion of their mind space was taken up by food, calorie, exercise, counting, berating themselves. And when you could start to peel back the impact of that eating disorder on their mental functioning, they just blossomed and flourished and were these amazingly smart, ambitious, driven, and accomplished individuals that had been directing all of this energy into something that sort of doesn't deserve it. Right. And watching them make that shift was such a, a hook for me. I loved that. Yeah. Um, and actually my supervisor from that rotation, she and I have stayed friends and colleagues, and she is the co-author um, of this book with me, which is, uh, it was actually her idea. I was really happy to come along for the, for the ride. And um, I think that I'm really proud yeah. of uh, what done. Well, having that book like that out there, I think is helpful in terms of, you know, cause you're um, as you're saying a, f- a few moments ago, Danielle, it's something important for therapists to be aware of. Yes. And it's, it's helpful for that to be just like out in the world for the general public. If, if somebody's, you know, again, I can imagine somebody, maybe you're saying there's so much shame uh, associated with it. Someone struggling with, with it um, individually at home, not telling anyone about it and how powerful to, you know, be scrolling through Amazon and maybe trying to look for like, how can I work on this? And then to have a book that's directly targeting this very common problem is really powerful. I mean, this is, this is how, like, you know, just with any, any psychological struggle, like a lot of ways that people find their ways, their way into our offices, right. Is that they've done their own research, right. I mean, I don't know if you guys have had that experience where I've had people say like, I read this thing or I read yeah. this book about it and that got me, made me aware that anxiety is common or, you know. That well, what's so crazy about this is that you have to eat. That's what you said. It's a, yeah. everyone, it's, it's a, it's a basic need. Everyone has to eat. And so I love that you're, it's about making peace with food. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things you just also talked about was men and women. And so I think it's, it's socially. You were, say, you're reading my mind. <laughs> there it is again. You're reading my mind. We're good at that. Yeah. So, so I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, because I think men certainly have some, we all have shame around. So I also feel that everybody is just, is, is dysmorphic in their body perception. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's like a hundred, 99% of the people I feel. I'm going to put that out there. But in terms of like being a well, every, Everybody has negative body image thoughts at some point. Like there's never been a human that walked this earth that never like judged themselves. Because our as we talk about a million times in this podcast, brains right. are wired to judge. Yes. We walk around in in these physical bodies all the time. There's no way our brains wouldn't direct those judgments towards our physical bodies at some point. Ever. So let's look at the difference of gender. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, well- the sort of what we might think of as the traditional eating disorders, the ones that, you know, people of our generation probably learned about in elementary or high school, anorexia and bulimia are far more prevalent in women. And that's obviously because both of those are associated with an explicit focus on weight loss or a desire to have a smaller body. And um, that's a social standard to which women have traditionally been held much more strongly than Mm -hmm. men. Yes. Um, So I think that there's, you know, there's pretty good evidence that um, those social expectations are are part of why women have been disproportionately impacted. But binge eating is actually equally prevalent among men and women. Mm. Um, And so I think that there's something a little bit different given that binge eating isn't necessarily about attempts to control one's weight or size. Um, For some people, that's a part of it. And those people tend to actually have a a much harder time. Um, They tend to have more distress associated with their eating in general. Um, But 
binge eating is special in that men and women are about equally impacted. Mm. Um, and I think when we were writing the book, we really, one of the things I had in mind was that I wanted the exercises we have to speak equally to men and women, because I think men are traditionally really excluded from the eating disorders world. They don't see themselves represented, Mm. but they really are there. Um, So we wanted to reach out to them and create something that felt relevant to them too. And we have a lot of case examples that are sort of public um, case examples embedded into the book, including this one, a guy named Joey Julius, who was a, a football player, a, a mm-hmm. college football player who was, you know, I think one of the first men to really come forward and, and struggle um, with his binge eating in a very public way. And I think highlighting that those people are out there, those voices are out there, those yeah. role models for getting treatment are out there is really important. I, I read an article, um, I don't know, it's probably like a month or so ago. Don't quote me on where I read it. And I was like some <laughs> Apple News article <laughs> I found on my phone. Maybe it was like in the Atlantic or something like that. It was your algorithm that sent it to you. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it was it was a fascinating article about, um, not about binge eating specifically, but about disordered eating on the whole in men. And it was referencing some current cultural examples like, and of course, I'm going to mess, is it Jack Dorsey, right? The head of Twitter, right? Am I saying that? Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So they were talking about examples like Jack Dorsey, you know, where he, he engages in like extreme like intermittent fasting. Um, and, and I can't remember the, a couple other examples they were using, but it was, it, they were interviewing a, a man who was saying he didn't recognize in himself that what he was engaging in was disordered eating because all of the cultural examples of men are, men are celebrated for those things. Yeah. Like, isn't, look, isn't he innovative? Isn't, you know, mm-hmm. he's, you know, this is the cutting edge of, um, like quote unquote hacking the body. And, and the author was saying, Imagine if if a female celebrity was engaging in those behaviors, how how she would be judged in the media that immediately people would have the lens of like that's disordered eating. So I'm just just wondering, uh, Danielle, if that's you know, is that something that has sort of come up for you clinically at all or Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's that guise of health that gets spread over some kinds of diets that are actually just disordered eating. Right. Um, And uh, it's, it is much easier for men to sort of, um, I don't want to use the term get away with it because I don't think they're doing it manipulatively, but for those behaviors to not go labeled as problematic. Yeah. Um, And you know, I think the intermittent fasting thing is a really good one. And there's a whole culture, you know, we might call it orthorexia in our clinical world, uh-huh. where like an excessive adherence to the idea of a healthy or clean diet that gets yeah. praised. And some, for some people in some situations that might work, right? Like it's all about workability and effectiveness, mm-hmm. but for a lot of people, that approach to eating and diet creates excessive rigidity and a high degree of distress and blame um, in their own eating patterns. Um, and it's generally not functional, but it's socially very acceptable. Yeah. So if you were working with someone like that, like I wonder from the book, what's like a like one of the top tips or interventions behaviorally that are recommended in this example, let's say. Yeah. Well, I, I can't give you one. I have to give you two. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, that's the nature the of my <laughs> Food is uh, eating problems are always about food and not about food. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I think you have to intervene simultaneously on yeah. both of those tracks for it to be effective. So one, the the most effective thing you can do in terms of the part that's about food is stop dieting. Mm. Dieting is the single best way to cause an eating disorder, including binge eating. There, all diets work in the short term. No 
long-term effects, positive effects of dieting have ever been found in about two out of three studies. They suggest that people who go on a diet end up weighing more than people who don't go on a diet over time. There's lots of both psychological and physiological reasons for that. Dieting itself is problematic. So the, the part that's about food eating regularly so that you're not hungry is essential. And so that you don't feel psychological deprivation either, right? Like you could eat 2000 calories a day of baby carrots, but you're going to feel deprived. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you should. Yeah, right. No one ever said I've had a tough day. I want some carrots. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. right. No. Yeah. You need to take care of your body's physiological needs and, you know, your psychological sense of um, fulfillment and satisfaction. That's like about food. You need to eat enough, basically. Mm. The other thing that I would say for somebody who's really hooked into this orthorexia trap and getting excessively rigid is actually a values exercise. Mm. Um, we have one in the book, but I think a lot of varieties of them work. Like, is what you want on your tombstone to be, you know, Nikki, she only weighed X or she <laughs> only ate spinach, right? Yeah. Like, probably not. Right. No, right. No. Other traits and right. So if you're eating or your feelings about your weight and shape are getting in the way of you living in a, a life that's aligned with your values as a friend, as a partner, Amen. as a parent, then, then that helps people get in touch with like, wait, my priorities are way out of whack, way out of line right. with my values. And that can really open up some new flexibility. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, of course, you know, I'd be helpful if I had mentioned this, my apologies in the beginning, Danielle is also uh, a third wave cognitive behavioral therapist, you know, in our, well, everyone you know, knows that now. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yes. So, you know, uh, what I think is, um, really helpful for listeners in, you know, obviously just tying together, you know, the theme of the topics that Pete and I discuss here is that psychological flexibility and, and behavioral flexibility are essential for well-being. And so what I'm really hearing and what Danielle is explaining today, um, you know, is, is sharing like that, that goes for disordered eating as well. That it's like, you're saying like dieting is inherently rigid. That's actually not moving somebody towards being healthier. It's not right. How do you help them do that? It's by letting, you know, the letting go and tying things to what's meaningful to them. So, you know, that's a very important point to make here. And sometimes I, you know, when I'm sharing these ideas with people, both with clients and with sort of members of the the lay public, they will fall into a a sort of rigid or black and white way of thinking about what I'm saying. Oh, you're saying I shouldn't diet. I should just eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I should eat ice cream all day, every day. No, I'm actually not saying to go on to the other end of the extreme. I'm saying like all foods can be a part of a healthy diet. And that um, satisfaction and what makes your body feel fueled and and um, what gives you joy, there's room for all of that in eating. And I think, you know, so just in case any listeners are out there thinking like, well, this woman just wants us to eat hamburgers all day. Like, no, nope, <laughs> right. you should eat one when you really want one and what that right. feels good for your body. And like, I think if you eat in that way where you let yourself have flexibility, most people are surprised that they also do want the things that they might've thought they were forcing themselves. Right. Yes. So what was it like to write the book with your mentor? It was really fun. Um, We are really, um, we are very similar probably in our clinical approach in the room, um, but we come to it from really different places. So I come to it from a really, evidence-based research scientific um, stance. And she comes to it from a much more um, intuitive place um, where she like really, um, she just emanates 
just something about her that's just like so warm and validating and authentic and genuine. And we, but we end up doing the same things in the room. Um, so it was really fun to have her say, well, I, this is what I do with patients and me to say like, oh, there's, let me fill in the studies around why that works or uh-huh. that kind of thing. Um, and we have, you know, we have s- some parts of what we do that are somewhat different. I'm much more um, act focused um, yeah. and she has a much um, deeper um, grounding in some interpersonal uh, kinds of approaches. So it was, it was really fun to complement each other. It was a lot of work. I'm really glad that it was done before the pandemic started. Um, for those of you thinking about writing a book, it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> both, I mean, too, as I love to brag about my my beloved people here, so, so, <laughs> both Pete and Danielle fall into that category. Both both just wrote books, and I would always, I, with both of them, I told them, I'm like, I just can't believe somebody I know wrote this. It's just so, <laughs> just so amazing. I just tear up about it. She's our PR, Dan, Danielle. <laughs> Absolutely. She, she's our PR. So I'm going to maybe just jump into a little just uh, behaviorally binge eating. Yeah. You know, just maybe even, de- did we define it yet? We define disordered eating, but binge eating. Cause, I think that would be helpful because I think people yeah. listening might be going, because you mentioned a little What's bit. That? Well, and also like, like the confusion, I mean, I see it clinically all the time. Like people are like, what am I overeating or am I binge right. eating? Because sometimes people are like, calling it a binge and it's not a binge. Sometimes people are binging and they're saying I'm just overeating. So I think that would be really helpful actually. Yeah. Yeah. And there aren't, you know, I think a lot of times when people think about the definition of a binge, they want there to be like a calorie cutoff or something right. like that. Yeah. The actual definition is much more fuzzy. Yeah. It's eating much more than someone else would in a given set in a, in a similar circumstance is one part mm-hmm. of it. So that means like if you've been fasting all day or at Thanksgiving, like eating a lot on those kinds of occasions probably isn't binge eating because right. that's normal for that set of circumstances. Right, eating a lot more than other others might in similar circumstances, and it has to cause some kind of distress. So the kinds of distress we often see are people feeling physically ill, like they've eaten beyond the point where they're comfortably full. They're starting to feel sick. They're feeling a lot of distress, guilt, blame, shame. Um, they're doing it eating in secret is another mm. sign that binges might be sort of clinically problematic. Um, and again, that it's like really getting in the way of them living their lives in a healthy and flexible way. Um, so there's not as much uh, rigidity around the definition as some yeah. people assume. No, I, I mean, I just had an aha moment. So thank you. Because I think the Thanksgiving metaphor was beautiful. Yeah. I think that's really like that really connected for me of like that that's within normal limits of like that holiday Mm -hmm. maybe going to like a Sunday football game you might have an extra hot dog or something or beer that you wouldn't otherwise have versus like a Friday night on your couch by yourself with the Oreos and the Domino's and you're like oh I feel really full and I want to puke and that's probably less comfortable yeah people often have the experience when they're binge eating that it's actually like on autopilot like they've lost control over their own and that's really scary for people, both because it's just inherently scary to feel out of control of your own behavior, yeah. but also because it makes people discouraged about their ability to think that they can get better because it feels out of control. Mm-hmm. The reality is there are ways to get control in the binge eating cycle, um, but that moment where people are in their in that binge often feel scarily out of control. So then can you define like, again, I'm going to guess it's also like a more flexible definition, which I, which I appreciate. And I think that actually is helpful for people, right? To know like, it's more like listening to like what your experience is yeah. and how would you not, <laughs> I guess I don't want to use the word define now. I'm going to have to use it. Define overeating. How would you explain overeating then to somebody? Yeah. Again, like I think, um, 
for me, when I, when someone talks about overeating, the question I'm always asking myself in my mind is, are they eating beyond what is healthy and supportive Mm. for their bodies and their minds? Or are they describing overeating because they're breaking an excessively rigid diet rule that they've set for themselves? Okay. Yes. Like one extra cookie you might've broken some random diet rule you had for yourself, but that's not necessarily overeating. If they're eating and they're uncomfortable or they're eating, you know, to the point that they, or they're eating things that they know they shouldn't be eating because it's not good for their body is like someone who's lactose intolerant is eating a pint of ice cream and feeling really sick. Right. That to me is a sign that there's a sort of a clinical overlay to overeating, but it's really important to distinguish it from just breaking a diet rule, which is itself not inherently overeating. What do you think of the quarantine 15? Like what have you seen clinically or what's your sense about that? Eating disorders are skyrocketing. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense, um, for a number of reasons, Um, The first being that we as a society have lost most of the behavioral cues around eating that we are used to relying on, right? When you're working in an office, there's a lunchtime and there may not be access to food in between that lunchtime. And, you know, there may be a snack time that's in a constrained sort of environment, right? But we've lost those cues that we associate both time and place with eating, Um, and I think also more and more people are turning to food for things that food shouldn't do used for entertainment. (laughs) You know, it shouldn't be to replace relationships. Like there's a lot of stuff that people go to food for and go to other substances of abuse for, frankly, like drinking or drugs, um, when they have unmet psychological needs. So I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing in terms of the prevalence rates. That's so interesting because for me, you said a beautiful dialectic before that binge eating or the disordered eating is both about food and not about food. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that yep. to me sounds also relative to the quarantine 15 because it's both about food and not about food. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we know that one of the things that predicts both binge eating and overeating is actually food insecurity. Yeah. And there's a number of people oh. who are having food insecurity for financial reasons at the moment. Um, but also lots of people who, because of like hoarding or not being able to go to the store frequently are for the first time experiencing the anxiety of food insecurity. And that predicts overeating, um, and binge eating. I have more paper towels and toilet paper in my garage than I could probably ever use in the next like two or three years. Just it's, it it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. Scarcity leads to hoarding. Yeah. Yeah. I, of course, I'm, um, you know, <laughs> thinking about all re- roads lead to mindfulness, which I now say on, on the regs here That's on this right. podcast. And um, I'm wondering both, I want to ask both Danielle and Pete here, how, like, how do you weave mindfulness practices into binge eating, which in, you know, knowing you and knowing, knowing something about, uh, you know, how, how these disorders are treated, that's going to be a part of it. And then Pete, I'm really wondering how, how does Buddhism talk about struggles with eating. So whoever wants to jump in, I'll Danielle, go. You're I'm, the, I'm right you're here. The, listen, you're I'm right gu- here listening. I'm, you're the guest. Unless I you want me course. to. No, I'll, I'll go. Um, okay. So there's actually a whole line of treatments for eating um, disorders, including binge eating. Um, that's mindfulness based mm-hmm. program is called MB eat. And um, so I think if you want to do that in a really formal way, there are some formal mindfulness programs that are directed at eating. But I think what is often important, people who have um, 
who are having struggles both with their body or with their eating patterns have often lost touch with their um, intuitive cues around hunger and fullness. They've learned to stop trusting those or stop listening to those. So helping people start to reconnect to what hunger feels like in their body. What is too too much hunger? What is enough right. hunger to eat? What uh-huh. is enough fullness to stop? What is too full that you're uncomfortable? Using mindfulness to help cultivate those interoceptive exposure, um, uh, interoceptive cues is really important. And also mindfulness. I know you guys talked recently about beginner's mind. Oh. Mindfulness can help people reconnect to um, eating in a new way. If they start to experience food, if you really slow down and taste food, people are often surprised what they actually like and don't like. <laughs> When they start to eat more mindfully. Um, So I think that those are two really important ways. And the last way is using mindfulness to urge surf when you have an urge to binge or an urge to restrict to say like, I know what the right behavior for me is to choose next. And I'm going to ride out this urge mindfully. And then when it's, when it's passed, when I'm on the other end of that wave, I am going to engage in the behavior I know I need to. So slowing down in all the yeah. ways, it's like slowing down to taste what you're eating, slowing down to listen to your body, slowing down to uh, surf the urges that come up to to potentially overeat or binge. Love me some mindfulness. I mean, it's just so helpful. Well, loving my girls, loving my girls on the West Coast, they're talking about surfing and, and the wave. We could use that over here on the East with all the snow. So, so in the East uh, with Buddhism, I, 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 I'm on the fence of whether I read it or not, but. Um, we have a meal gatha that we that we repeat. So I won't say the whole thing, but it's about recognizing there's 72 labors brought you this food that um, you're trying to receive an offering to to consider your practice. You're also trying to like untangle your mind and be free from greed. So that's the third thing. And the the, the four the fourth and fifth are to support our life. We take this food and to uh, receive the way we take this food. So that like so you're looking at like greed because like how many of us have been at like a buffet and we go up for a second or third just because we're going to for mm-hmm. seconds and thirds and that could be seen as greed and so again you're doing it with the with the realization of what you're eating what you're consuming where it came from 72 labors brought us this food you know and thinking about that and and i, I will say when i first got to buddhism I was like sat with my teacher and I'm like, all right, what do I got to do? I got to give up wine. I got to give up meat. Like, what do I got to do? Because I got to be a good mm-hmm. Buddhist, whatever the hell that meant. Uh, and it's not about giving, and, and the Tibetans will write about this because if you're in the mountains, you can't farm mm-hmm. like as easily. So you can't eat a crop or plant-based diet. You may have to eat mm-hmm. animals and they do so mindfully with respect. Mm-hmm. So the way that they manage the animal, the way that the animals fed, the way that the animals slaughtered and cooked is all done in like a procedural, like honoring way. And so I, that, I, I, let's, so, so there's the East, but then you know, like, how do you respond to that? And how do you maybe see that fitting into this Western behavior? Yeah, I, I think that's all really beautiful and a, a different spirit of relating to eating. I think when people come through the door with eating problems, um, through the door of the clinic, they're often so disconnected from the joy and beauty that food can represent and the fact that we should honor where it came from. And actually, you know, I've, I've been in some um, groups where we were doing um, practices where we thought about um, how the food arrived to the plate that we were at. And it's incredible to watch people who otherwise are feeling quite lonely and disconnected while they're eating to understand that this is actually an act of community. Even if you're sitting at the table all by yourself, this food isn't a singular person's experience. And I think, you know, broadening your horizons to appreciate that is a different and joyful way to relate to food, to relate to eating. 
well, as we're getting ready to wrap up, I'm also reminded of like silent meals. Mm-hmm. So like at, at sessions, when we do like long retreats of silent retreats, um, silent meals are really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. So I, I was just going to, you know, I was going to say one thing that I think has really stood out to me today and um, getting to learn from Danielle is you've said the word joy a number of times mm-hmm. today. And I really appreciate that because I think obviously if people are, you know, they're clicking on this episode and it says disordered eating and, you know, there might be sort of understandably an expectation of like, this is going to be about all the, the quote, the bad things. And, and, and really what I'm, I'm hearing from Danielle today is like, it's reconnecting not only to values, not only to listening to our bodies and, and treating our bodies with respect in, in healthy ways, also in the service of like connecting with joy, like in mindfulness, it's not just about, you know, like experiencing the uncomfortable, it's experiencing the comfortable too. And yeah, food, I mean, across all cultures, right? Food is such an important way that we get to experience pleasure and connect with those we love. And, you know, I certainly miss <laughs> sitting in a restaurant with you <laughs> guys <laughs> and, and doing that. So, you know, that, that really stood out to me today. So thank what you. A beautiful so much, summary. Yeah. Danielle, this was wonderful. Do you have any parting words or yeah. really, I, we really appreciate you bringing your wisdom to us today. Oh, well, I am so glad to have the chance to talk about this with the two of you and to be on the show, which I love and listen to and recommend regularly. <laughs> um, so thank you for making space. And yes, I would just echo what Nikki said. Like, I think for anybody who's listening to this, who might be struggling in their body or with food to like even open the door to the possibility that there's a way to reconnect and be joyful and not have that part of your life feel like punishing. I think that that can be a really big motivator for taking a step towards healing. Thank you so much. This has been When East Meets West. I'm Dr. Nikki Rubin. And I'm Dr. Pete Economo. Be present, be brave. This has been When East Meets West. All material is based on opinion and educational training of Drs. Pete Economo and Nikki Rubin. Content is for informational and educational purposes only.